Even in a country like the United States, in the fairly enlightened 20th century, there were those who thought that, well, actually, their vision of how things should be was the best one, and that they should probably just be in charge. And if you opposed them, they said all sorts of disagreeable things about you. And sometimes they just outright lied. In this episode, we'll look at candy maker Robert Welch Jr., who founded the rapidly anti-communist John Birch Society. Despite the Atlantishness of what was said and done, his influence can be seen today in the fracturing political and social landscape of America. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. JBS BS, the John Birch Society. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Candy-coated commie hater. Robert Henry Winborn Welch Jr. grew up in North Carolina, schooled at home by his mother, got into high school at age 10 and at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill at age 12. So, a smart kid. But smart doesn't always mean pleasant, and his incessant attempts to convert his fellow students to his particular brand of fundamentalist Baptist beliefs made him, quote, an insufferable little squirt, as he himself put it later. After graduating, he went to the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, but dropped out after only two years, heading back to North Carolina to write news summaries in verse for a Raleigh newspaper. Then he quit that and went to Harvard Law School. His deep conservatism and rabid anti-communism didn't fit in so well with many of his fellow Havardians, and he thought he maybe detected Marxist ideologies in the school's curriculum. So, he dropped out of there as well. He moved to Brooklyn, New York, where he founded the Oxford Candy Company in 1921, helped by his brother James. Four years later, James went off to create the James O. Welch Company, and while the Oxford Candy Company failed during the Great Depression, James's company did not. So James hired Robert to be the director of sales and advertising. Their first big hit was a caramel lollipop called Sugar Daddy, which had been an Oxford product, actually. And then they would go on to create Sugar Babies, Junior Mints, and Pom Poms. The Welch brothers became millionaires, and Robert used his newfound wealth to fight what he saw as a vast communist conspiracy to undermine America. He once said there were four kinds of Americans, quote, communists, communist dupes or sympathizers, the uninformed who have yet to be awakened to the communist danger, and the ignorant. 
And then, of course, there was him who alone saw the truth, which is classic conspiracist thinking. Welch went on to hold various important positions in business and politics, ran for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts in 1950, which he lost in the primaries, helped support Senator Joseph McCarthy's re-election campaign, and in 1956 founded a magazine called One Man's Opinion, which he later rebranded as American Opinion two years later in 1958. 58 was the same year he also founded the John Birch Society to better fight the, quote, cancer, as he put it, of communism and big government. Birch the the Baptist Baptist Spy. Spy. The name of his group said a lot about where Welch's head was at. John Birch had been a Baptist missionary born in India, but two Americans, and his missionary parents moved back to the U.S. when he was only two years old, first to New Jersey and then to the state of Georgia. In 1939, he graduated top of his class from Mercer University, a heavily Baptist institution, and he was remembered as, quote, an angry young man, always a zealot. He felt he was called to defend the faith, and he alone knew what it was, this according to a fellow student at the time. A professor at Mercer said, quote, he was like a one-way valve, everything coming out and no room to take anything in. Among his extracurricular activities at the university, Birch had started a fellowship group that started spying on students and faculty to collect evidence of liberal trends and, quote, heresy, pressuring the school to hold a trial of five of what they saw as the worst offenders. Mercer mainly did this to calm Birch down and then quietly dropped the charges. In 1940, Birch went to China to spread the good word as he interpreted it. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Birch found himself stuck in China. He tried to enlist in the American Armed Forces, but had difficulties. Then one night, a local man brought him to another American in the area that had fallen from the sky, the man said. This was Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle, who had bailed out of his B-25 over a Chinese rice paddy after the plane got lost in a storm following a bombing run over Tokyo. Birch helped Doolittle find his scattered men, and together they joined up with some Chinese guerrillas who were fighting the Japanese occupiers, eventually linking up with the 14th Air Force. It turned out Birch had a knack for field intelligence work and pioneered the field, sneaking miles behind enemy lines to give locations for bombing targets, and he even oversaw the construction of three secret airstrips in enemy territory. He was given the Legion of Merit, and everyone who dealt with him said he was an excellent operative and officer, but could be quite overbearing. Later, Birch was transferred to the OSS and stationed at a base in Xi'an in northern China. After the Allied nuclear blasts at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Japanese surrendered on August 15, 1945. Just because one side surrenders doesn't mean hostilities instantly end. And 10 days later, Birch was leading a recon mission to see what the local communist cells were up to, since the destabilization of the region during the war had opened up windows of opportunity for them to maybe take over the country. Along the way, they encountered a communist group, and apparently an argument ensued. Birch was grabbed, tied up, and then shot. His body was then bayoneted 15 times and dumped onto a trash heap. When word of this got back to the American military, he was posthumously awarded the Oak Leaf Cluster. This whole story was kept under wraps by the American government, but somehow Welch, probably through his various political connections, heard tell of this covert warrior for the truth, God, and the American way, and became inspired. After the war, Welch had gone to Britain, but saw what he thought of as a disturbing trend towards liberalism there, which in his mind was synonymous with socialism, which was synonymous with communism. 
He then went back to the States and warned people, quote, There is no reason on earth why we should import or let ourselves be infected by such diseases as socialism and communism and other ideological cancers. Welch attacked Truman. He said Eisenhower was a, quote, agent of the communist conspiracy because he was willing to speak to the Soviets. And so was the Secretary of State, John Fuster Dulles, and Alan Dulles, director of the newly formed CIA. And so, taking inspiration from his fellow Baptist and commie hater, Welch formed the John Birch Society on December 9, 1958. Among the founding members were Fred C. Koch of Koch Industries, whose sons David and Charles were also members for a while. You know, the Koch brothers. Robert Waring Stoddard was also a founder. Harry Lynn Bradley of the Allen Bradley Company, and Revillo P. Oliver, a philology professor at the University of Illinois, a rabid anti-Semite, and a white nationalist who had co-founded the National Review. Oliver would eventually be expelled from the John Birch Society after he said in 1966 that all Jews should be, quote, vaporized at dawn tomorrow, as well as Bolsheviks and the Illuminati, and he accused Welch of selling out to the Zionists. Later in life, Oliver seemed to go pretty much full Nazi, even declaring that Christianity itself was a Jewish plot to weaken white people's minds with notions of forgiveness and peace. He was much more of an Old Testament kind of guy. Red Scares To understand how this group could go from just 12 people that December day to over 100,000 at its height, perhaps a little background on the zeitgeist of the time would be useful. Ideas of communal societies go all the way back to antiquity, but when most moderns say communism, they mean Marxism. The foundational book for this movement, The Communist Manifesto, was published in 1848, followed by Capital, a Critique of Political Economy, also known as just Das Kapital, which he co-authored with Frederick Engels and which was published in 1869. The Russian Tsar was toppled by an uprising in 1917 led by Vladimir Lenin, who saw himself as a revolutionary promoting the interpretations of Georgi Plekhanov, a revolution that would cause Russia to withdraw from World War I. American business interests became quite concerned as anarchist cells increased their bombings and union organizers convinced more and more workers to strike for better conditions. By early 1919, the U.S. was in a full-blown red scare, starting with a shipyard strike in Seattle, 35,000 strong, and ending with many people, mainly Russians, being deported by the authorities and others being interred into a concentration camp at Camp Upton on Long Island in New York. Socialists were expelled from political parties, strikes were violently broken up, and unions were prevented from forming. A law banning any displays of red flags was passed in Kansas in 1919 and soon adopted by another 24 states. Black flags were also banned because they were seen as being anarchist. Other bans included displaying any symbol authorities thought showed disloyalty to the United States, which is a pretty open brief. So-called anti-syndicalist laws made it illegal to, quote, destroy organized government. And apparently going on strike was included as attempting to destroy organized government. Penalties could range from fines from $1,000 to $5,000, the equivalent today of $17,000 to $87,000, and or prison sentences of 5 to 10 years. 
By mid-1920, it all calmed down to some extent, but these events would certainly have an effect on the Immigration Act of 1924, which, in addition to creating the first U.S. Border Patrol, stopped all immigration from Asia and created quotas for people coming from Southern or Eastern Europe, capping total immigration from anywhere to 165,000 a year. Later historians would see that this essentially created a white American ideal with desirable immigrants generally being lighter-skinned and darker-skinned people being stereotyped and stigmatized. And all Slavs were suspected of being possible communist plants and agitators. So despite being pale, they were also suspect. Communist sympathies gained traction during the Great Depression and because they were adamantly opposed to fascism during World War II. This led to the second Red Scare, which kicked off in 1947 with President Truman's Executive Order 9835, which created a loyalty oath program in which people, at first government workers, but then private businesses also started adapting it, in which workers had to swear they were not part of any organization that was fascist, communist, totalitarian, or subversive that they had never advocated for the overthrow of the U.S. government, and that they had never shared confidential information with anyone they weren't supposed to. In 1950, Senator Joe McCarthy would start making big noise about the government being infiltrated by communists, which led to the hearings and trials we all know about, and the blacklist, the revoking of passports, thousands of people losing their jobs, and the imprisonment of hundreds of people. Added to the list of undesirables were, quote, sexual perverts, which meant homosexuals. Homosexuality was officially classified as a mental disorder, and because people living that lifestyle had to behave in furtive and secretive ways, they were probably also all spies. And the fact that they would want their private activities to be kept quiet meant that they were easy to blackmail by communist agents. President Eisenhower signed the Communist Control Act of 1954, which outlawed the Communist Party outright, as well as support for that party and also support for anything deemed, quote, communist action, I guess like strikes. McCarthy's death in 1957 of hepatitis at age 48 saw one of the main proponents of these jackboot tactics removed from the scene, and when the landmark legal case Kent v. Dulles went before the U.S. Supreme Court in April 1958, who ruled in June that year that the government could not restrict people's right to travel based on things they said or wrote, the second Red Scare, which had gone on for 12 years, kind of came to a close. And yet there were those who still feared the communist threat, fueled on by the October 1957 launch of the USSR's Sputnik, the first artificial satellite, and word started to go out about some of Stalin's atrocities during his 30-year reign in the Soviet Union. There were many, especially high up in business, who felt that maybe things had not gone far enough in the 50s and that the country seemed like it was going soft on communism. It was in this environment that Robert Welch Jr. founded the John Birch Society in 58. JBS BS. Welch created a complicated organizational structure that, no surprise, had him at the top and pretty much in total control. Their platform was broad, opposing a, quote, one world government, the UN, all free trade agreements, and a drastic reduction in immigration to the United States. Essentially, America should become isolationist and insular, not a world leader or even a participant in world affairs. The Birchers said government had no right to collect taxes, oppose the entire Federal Reserve System, and later the Civil Rights Movement and Equal Rights Amendment. 
Basically, America should stop changing, and in fact, maybe it should go back a ways. Welch had once said that he thought America was at its greatest time around the year 1900. They complained about anything they saw as signs of moral decline, drugs, abortion, homosexuality, feminism, pornography, sex outside marriage, a lot about what people should or should not do with their own bodies, in fact. Because, say the Birchers, it is through this kind of moral weakening that the nation becomes vulnerable to outside conspiracies that actively seek to make the country internationalist. Speaking of conspiracy theories, Welch believed in quite a few of them which he promoted heavily through the JBS. He very much believed a shadowy elite group was manipulating events behind the scenes and had been doing so for quite some time. These malefactors would form various bodies and organs to do their bidding like the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, the United Nations, and so on. He thought the Protocols of the Elders of Zion were real and heavily promoted conspiracy theories about the real identity of the evil puppet string pullers. At first the Jews, but then he kind of dropped that line and just focused on the Illuminati, whoever they are, and communists. He also seems to be the point zero for the whole water fluoridation is a commie plot conspiracy theory. You see, after decades of research, the U.S. had decided that adding fluoride to the public water supply would greatly reduce tooth decay for the nominal cost of $1.17 per citizen. Sounds like value for money. They started adding it to the water in 1950, and by 1960, it was widespread throughout the country. Widespread, but not universal. Even as recently as 2006, only 61.5% of the U.S. populace has fluoridated water, plus another 3% who drank water that had naturally occurring fluoride in it. But for Welch, who, as previously noted, seemed unduly obsessed with people's bodies and what they did with them, this was some sort of nefarious plot. Interestingly, he didn't seem to mind vitamin D being added to milk or iodine to salt, but fluoride in the water was just a step too far. As unhinged Air Force Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper puts it in Stanley Kubrick's 1964 satirical comedy, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, as Ripper says to Group Captain Mandrake, You know when fluoridation first began? 1946. 1946, Mandrake. How does that coincide with your post-war comic conspiracy, huh? It's incredibly obvious, isn't it? A foreign substance is introduced into our precious bodily fluids without the knowledge of the individual, certainly without any choice. Well, that's the way your hardcore commie works. Ripper goes on to say that he'd noted that after the physical act of love, he felt, quote, a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness. Luckily, I, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly loss of essence. He attributes this loss of essence and this empty feeling to fluoride in his water. Later, anti-fluoriders would trace it back even further, claiming the Nazis had used fluoride to pacify prisoners and keep them docile. In 1954, an American chemist who had gone to Germany claimed he learned all about how fluoride impairs cognitive functions and the activity of the thyroid and lowers IQ scores. This, of course, is not true, but every new movement needs good narratives to sustain them, especially in their early days, and the water fluoridation scare story was a good one for the JBS. Conservative writer and editor of the National Review, William F. Buckley Jr., said in 1962 that the John Birch Society was, quote, far removed from common sense and regulated them to the extreme fringe of conservatism. 
Yep, membership continued to grow as the times got weirder and weirder for those who think the United States should be frozen in amber in the year 1900. A Catholic, yes, a Catholic, had become president, anathema for a hardcore Baptist like Welch. He organized a public campaign to call for Chief Justice of the Supreme Court Earl Warren to be impeached. He called for people to boycott the company Xerox because they sponsored TV programs that he thought were somehow favorable to the U.M., in the late 1960s, he claimed that Johnson's war against communists in Vietnam was actually itself a communist plot, which weirdly put him in the anti-war camp, which was very much a leftist cause. As Welch got more and more seemingly unhinged, plenty of folks tried to distance themselves from his rantings. The Mormons distanced themselves in 1963, issuing a statement to that effect. In 1964, ultra-conservative Ayn Rand said that they were, quote, futile and, quote, childish, being mainly anti-communist but not staunchly pro-capitalist and promoting both left and right-wing conspiracy theories. No country can be destroyed by a mere conspiracy, she said. It can only be destroyed by ideas. That's the kind of thing that she said that sounds wise, but actually doesn't mean much. And yet, the JBS continued to thrive, accepting pretty much anyone who said they loathed communism with a deep and abiding passion. Other far-right groups denounced the John Birchers because they accepted people that those groups didn't like, such as Masons or Mormons, non-white people, Muslims, Buddhists, and even <gasps> some Jews. Some said it was a Zionist front. Others said it was secretly a pro-feminism front. Welsh, however, was undeterred. He very much supported Barry Goldwater's 1964 run of the presidency, as did many Birchers, though some were fonder of Nixon. Goldwater was firmly anti-union, anti-communist, pro-states' rights, but weirdly not terribly opposed to increased civil rights for non-whites, though he thought the Civil Rights Act of 1964 went too far. And he was also a little bit for environmental protections. I guess Goldwater today would be considered more of a libertarian than a Republican at the time, though an examination of his voting record shows him in line with mainstream Republicans more often than not. Many say that his 1964 bid for the White House laid the groundwork for Ronald Reagan's 1980 victory. Many supporters of Goldwater, Nixon, and Reagan rather thought that a new conservatism was needed to counteract and maybe reverse the changes that had happened in society during the 60s and 70s that they were not comfortable with at all. But Welch was a bit more on the extreme side of these arguments. In 1965, he published a flyer titled What's Wrong with Civil Rights that claimed the civil rights movement had been created by communists, part of a long-range plan that was conceived of way back in the 1920s to create a, quote, Soviet Negro Republic in the southeastern United States, meaning the former slaveholding states. Weirdly, some black conservatives, notably socialist-turned-conservative George Shuler and former communist-turned-conservative Manning Johnson, echoed these ideas and spread them themselves. In 1966, the Birches expanded their attacks to public libraries, school boards, parent-teacher associations, sex education in schools, abortion, and mental health programs. Sound familiar? It should. They even started going after the Republican Party for not being anti-communist enough and the interdenominational ecumenical movement, which sought to find common ground between all the different variations of Christianity in the U.S. There's only one correct interpretation of the Bible, and that's hardcore Baptist. 
go your own way, as Fleetwood Mac sang. In the 1970s, the JBS opposed the formation of OSHA and said that because Communist China supplied most of the heroin in the U.S., a claim that they had no evidence for, Nixon should not be talking to them. But he did, and so now he was in their crosshairs. They also said that even though the U.S. had signed a treaty that said control of the Panama Canal would transfer over to the country of Panama, the United States should not honor that treaty. So while the Birchers had initially gained some support among conservatives and anti-communist activists in the late 50s and early 60s, its extreme rhetoric and controversial views led to significant backlash and criticism from mainstream politicians, journalists, and civil rights organizations. And yet despite this, the organization has continued to exist and maintain a presence in conservative circles in the U.S. The organization has also been associated with various conspiracy theories apart from the fluoride thing. And it has been criticized repeatedly for promoting extremist and even sometimes racist views. The Birches have been involved in campaigns against the United Nations, all civil rights organizations, the alleged communist infiltration of the U.S. government, and so on. In recent years, the group has been relatively low profile, though it continues to maintain a presence and occasionally involve itself in various political campaigns and issues. Many think the Birchers were a key factor in defeating the Equal Rights Amendment. They said the whole initiative was a conspiracy, quote, to reduce human beings to living at the same level as animals. Though how passing a constitutional amendment guaranteeing equal rights under the law for all citizens regardless of sex amounted to living like animals is unclear. Perhaps Welch should have watched more of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. It is worth noting that Phyllis Schlafly, who led the charge against the ERA, was a member of the John Birch Society. They also started saying that Latrol, a semi-synthetic derivative of the naturally occurring chemical compound amygdalin, often found in stone fruit kernels, was a cure for cancer, and they tried to get various states to pass laws legalizing its use. It is not a cure for cancer, because if it was, we would be using it. Now come the 1980s and the election of Ronald Reagan to the White House and the rise of a more Goldwater-like conservatism, Nonetheless, membership in the John Birch Society declined, mainly because a lot of these ideas had started going kind of mainstream. And yet the Birchers were still around and still having influence. In 1981, a conservative anti-communist group called the Council for National Policy was founded, and they supported a number of Bircher notions. In 1985, the Birchers started a magazine called The New American, specifically to promote their agenda and the various conspiracy theories that Welch came up with. Welch died that same year, 1985, and the organization really didn't have anybody who could take his place since he had so firmly held the reins. Then, the collapse of communism in Europe in 1989 made the Bircher message even less relevant and appealing, though George W. Bush's ill-advised use of the phrase New World Order during the Gulf War in 1991 inspired a temporary increase in enrollment. But by the middle of the 90s, they were down to about 15,000 members a far cry from their height of 100,000. In 1992, JBS member Howard Phillips founded the U.S. Taxpayers Party, which later rebranded themselves as the Constitution Party in 1999. This was an attempt to take away some of the Bircher base. The Constitution Party rejects scientific consensus on climate change, seeing it as part of a globalist plot to gain more control of the land, 
They want to repeal the 16th Amendment, which lets the federal government collect income taxes, and the 17th Amendment, which calls for senators to be elected by popular vote. They like the Electoral College, and they say that any state can leave the federal unit at any time because membership is totally voluntary. They also want to phase out Social Security, claiming it's welfare and not in the Constitution, as well as, naturally, all forms of welfare. They want to require all states only accept currencies backed by gold or silver, the national criminalization of abortion in all cases, the criminalization of suicide or attempted suicide. They want to define marriage as between a man and a woman. They're against homosexuals adopting children. They support states passing any laws they like in regards to, quote, offensive sexual behavior, which obviously they mean homosexuals and transgender people. They want pornography outlawed as well as gambling. They want the federal government to have no part in supporting any charities or subsidizing any kind of medical treatments. They also want to enshrine English as the official language of the nation, which it is not, and oppose bilingual or multilingual ballots. They want stricter immigration controls and that the U.S. should withdraw from all international treaties and organizations like the U.N., NATO, NAFTA, GATT, the WTO, and so on. This is all right in line with Bircher ideals. Back to the year 1900 we go. Apparently that was when America was, quote, great. There's also a religious element to the Constitution Party who say that the United States was founded as a Christian nation and is not, in fact, a democracy at all. They call for all laws to be remade along lines set down in the Old Testament. This is some Christian identity stuff right here. And in the 90s, Christian identity gets linked up to white supremacists and the militia movement. So apparently, some people on the far right would like to go back further than 1900, like a lot further. Also, they think the U.S. should officially recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ, whatever the hell that would look like. In the year 2000, internal fighting over some of these religious ideas caused a number of members to split off into the American Heritage Party, which became the Christian Liberty Party. Fellow, Fellow travelers. travelers, the Constitution Party, which has around 130,000 members today, has attracted conspiracy folks such as Jim Gilchrist, founder of the Minutemen Project that promotes extrajudicial policing of U.S. borders, and Jerome Corsi, a former bureau chief for Alex Jones's Infowars, who loathed Hillary Clinton. In 2015, he said she was a secret lesbian Muslim, and he hated Barack Obama. He was very big into the birther conspiracy mindset spread by Donald Trump and may also have been the originator of the rumor that Obama had been in a relationship with his male Pakistani roommate in college. Of course, it was very much part of that swift boating nonsense that tanked John Kerry's presidential bid. But he also claimed George W. Bush was a secret globalist trying to form a North American union that would make the U.S., Canada, and Mexico all one big country. That they would introduce a new currency called the Amero no later than the year 2017. He also thinks the World Trade Center towers were destroyed by controlled demolitions and that the airplane attacks were just cover for this. And in 2014, Corsi wrote a book exploring the idea that maybe Hitler didn't die at the end of World War II and escaped Berlin safely. Like so many conspiracy people, he just can't seem to choose one. He has to try and fill his plate with everything from the buffet. 
All this sort of stuff really comes from the influence of the John Birch Society, which is in many ways foundational to many of today's prevailing conspiracy theories. And like all the conspiracy-minded, they continue to collect narratives to add to their paranoia suite. For example, in 2017, they said the UN Agenda 21 was a plan to, quote, establish control over all human activity, an idea that was examined at length in a previous episode. U.S. politician Ron Paul has expressed praise for the John Birch Society, saying in 2008 that they were leading the fight to restore freedom. And the Birchers keep their eyes on what's happening in U.S. politics. They even maintain what they call a Freedom Index, which, quote, rates members of Congress based on their adherence to constitutional principles of limited government, fiscal responsibility, national sovereignty, and a traditional foreign policy of avoiding foreign entanglements. They also maintain things called legislative scorecards that do the same thing for state-level politicians. Canadian commentator Jeet Heer, writing for the New Republic in June 2016, said that Trumpism is basically Bircherism. In fact, Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, had been a personal friend of Robert Welch Jr. and a huge supporter of the John Birch Society, channeling them quite a bit of money over the years. Mick Mulvaney, right before he became Donald Trump's chief of staff, spoke at the Birchers' National Council dinner. In 2017, Alex Jones said that Trump was, quote, more John Birch Society than the John Birch Society. And in 2018, he said Trump was, quote, a John Birch Society president. Could Trump have been a culmination of many Bircher ideals? Maybe, but if so, he seems to not have done a terribly good job at pushing their agenda. And yet many see the John Birch Society's influence in much of today's conservatism, at least in the U.S., Fringe groups like the Constitution Party and the Tea Partiers, remember them? And then the Magosphere, and then, oh, suddenly the fringe was mainstream. Partly because the Republicans wanted to win at all costs and really didn't think that these out-there lunatics could cause any lasting damage. And yet QAnon continues to stalk the halls of Congress, figuratively and once, literally, and the so-called Freedom Caucus sitting in the House of Representatives seems to be planning some big moves in the near future. It's possible the damage has been far more extensive than those who opened the door for Bircher types had thought possible, and it's been a long time a-coming. That's what some who look at these sorts of things are starting to think. There's a fairly comprehensive list of links in the episode notes to articles and books with titles like How the John Birch Society Invented the Modern Far Right, The Fringe Group That Broke the GOP's Brain and Helped the Party Win Elections, and It Didn't Start with Trump, The Decades-Long Saga of How the GOP Went Crazy. Donald Trump, like the Birchers, seemed unconcerned with how true a particular claim or conspiracy theory may or may not have been, and both he and the Birchers are essentially populist in nature, though most Trump watchers say that the man is really more of a textbook narcissist than an ideologue, the living embodiment of privilege. However, there's a lot of room way out there at the fringe, and for some, the Birchers and maybe even Trumpism just doesn't go far enough. And there seems to be no shortage of people who think that really, when you take a good look at things, it should be them who is really in charge. So that's the weird and winding tale of Robert Welch Jr.'s John Birch Society. It's pretty apparent that uh, many of the foundational elements in political and cultural landscape of modern-day America can be found in the Bircher rantings. The country needs to go back to 1900 or maybe even earlier, they seem to think. 
And certainly all this racial mixing and women's lib and drugs and homosexuals is just a little too much to handle. The problem is, is that these conspiratorial narratives, even though they have no foundation in fact, are nonetheless extremely powerful and they take hold of people's minds, especially people who are fearful of the future for whatever reason. As the pace of change continues to accelerate through the 21st century, it is very likely we're going to see more and more rhetoric along the lines of the John Birch Society. How far will it all go? Who knows? Maybe the sky's the limit. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.